Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, a podcast of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. In the spring of 2020, we created this podcast in response to a need to connect in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and to explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm Sarah Valenti, visiting assistant professor at the School of Arts and Humanities at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara Einstein Raven, Professor of Holocaust Studies. Today's episode is about significant events that took place in the year 1936. To see copies of the images we'll discuss throughout this episode, please download the Primary Sources Guide for this episode on our website, at ackerman.utdallas.edu forward slash virtual dash outreach. Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast. Today we're back and we will be speaking about the year of 1936. I am here with Dr. Romer and our research assistant, Angie Simmons, who will be starting us off with a article from the New York Times that was published in 1936. From the New York Times, Nazis cloak anti-Semitism for the Olympics, the war against Jews is to be waged with less publicity. Berlin, January 10th. There are indications that James McDonald's indictment of the National Socialist persecution of Jews, together with President Roosevelt's denunciation of autocratic regimes generally, and the imminence of the Olympic Games are beginning to have at least one effect, the cold pogrom, which now is concentrated to drive Jews from business, will be conducted in the immediate future less spectacularly and more undercover than has been the rule heretofore. According to the reliable information, Chancellor Hitler has issued a categoric but strictly internal party order that all anti-Jewish boycott posters and all anti-Jewish banners stretched across the main streets in German towns above all public street boxes displaying Julius Stryker's notorious Sturmer, for which local Nazi organizations have been forced to stand sponsor, must disappear by the middle of February presumably to spare foreign visitors to the Olympic Games their sight. So I think this is a brilliant article that captures, you know, part of the, you know, what you could otherwise also call the dressing up of Germany. So in lots of ways, in order to prepare for the Olympics, the Nazis, Hitler amongst them, were very mindful that this was a great opportunity to showcase Germany and that the racial politics were not supposed to get into the way, at least not in that way. Was it meant to be a showcasing of Germany and, quote, its Aryan race and its superior athletes? Absolutely. But was it kind of to get bugged down in its anti-Jewish politics and the harassment and the intimidation? Not so much. And therefore, there's a little bit of dressing down um, and in many ways also an interesting dressing up that is occurring you just think about the site itself. And I think uh, that's maybe the first thing that we can consider, the Olympic Stadium. I mean, for today, we just think about it. Even in today's standards, 
Um, a stadium, I mean, we might not all, you know, be the biggest of sports experts here, but let's, you know, throw our expertise together. Presumably, there are not a great many stadiums around these days that can hold up to 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. That's how the Olympic Stadium was designed from 1936 to hold 100,000 uh, spectators. So this is a spectac- spectacle on a gigantic scale. The Olympic Stadium was meant to become part of a new Berlin that the chief architect was going to design. Luckily for Berlin and many others, he never quite fully completed it, but he did build the Olympic Stadium, which means, you know, the dressing up, I think the hiding of sorts, I think was occurred in two ways. One, and this comes out of that article to kind of take down the posters, but the other to create a gigantic light beam on in the middle of this which I think absorbed everybody's attention. And so I think insofar as some hiding had to be done, I think the better concealment was almost Olympic Stadium because everyone had their eyes on that and on the athletes and on the competition and on the spectacle. And that absorbed everyone. Um, So that on balance, in the end, for all of the participants, they ended up wondering less about the preparation for war less about the racial politics and a lot about the shining athletes and the spectator and the the celebration of that. So I think it's really important to understand the power of the Third Reich as coming through, but also understanding the power of of public spectacles and of these masses. And and I think uh, it's no one less than Leni Riefenstahl, the most notorious of filmmakers, who leaves us eternal images of exactly that, of that power of that place. Mm-hmm. Yes, and of course you're referring to the film Olympia, which you know came out in 38, I think it was two years after this, but it largely was filmed during this time. And I think, you know, although we are focusing 1936, I think it is worthy mentioning that um, after the Olympics, uh, when Hitler, you know, wrote reports about what had happened, he... He, there's a quote where he says that, you know, in 1940, the, the, the next Olympic, something along these lines, the next Olympic will take place in Tokyo, but thereafter, they will always take place in Germany for all time to come in this stadium, right? So there's this notion that he has forever left an imprint in Germany through this kind of massive architectural plan that in many ways, as you were saying, but also it's what is hidden under that that plan that I think is something that we should perhaps explore a little bit. And that has to do with the second part of what Angie read in that article, that is the question of how anti-Semitic um, newspapers and you know postings on the streets and images that would have been opposed by the international community that would be coming to Germany for these games, those were made to quietly disappear for the for the duration of those months. And so what we have here, um, and this will, of course, be available on the website to our listeners, but if we take a look at the kind of propaganda material that although it was not, once again, it, it had been removed from the news kiosks, right? But this is an image that was published by Der Sturmer um, in 1936, and it it was the paper continued to publish and to produce even a special edition for the Olympics, which is where this image here comes from. So this image is featuring what we see is, of course, the Olympic um, symbol on the far um, left side. And we see, you know, the Nazi flags, the banners, three banners. And then, of course, 
it almost looks like an army um, of men passing by. And then what we have here on the closer to our view is this image of the stereotypical eternal Jew, right? That the, that the Nazis had already created this image um, where he is overweight, he has hooked nose. And of course, if we look on his jacket, there is also a communist symbol and he is carrying on his belt a knife and I believe a pistol. So there is this sense of, you know, what is happening on the outward um, what everyone can see is the is the the Olympics that is happening, but the Nazis themselves are already showing to those who are consuming this propaganda material that the Jews are on the shadowy background taking a look at everything. And even if he's not a part of it, he's still posing a kind of danger to this. He's quite literally lurking in, in the dark, but he's ready to do his harmful work. And like you said, He's identified with the Soviet Union, with the kind of communism. And then at the same time, he has the tools of his trade, meaning uh, of that of a crim criminal on his belt. So it's a very menacing uh, portrait, obviously, at the time. And it highlights again this, you know, perceived threat that Jews allegedly pose to the well-being and, and the kind of safety of, of European countries and in particular of, of Germany at the time. So, yes. Um, the the Olympics proceeded, but so did anti-Semitism and so did racism. And in many ways, I, I, you know, in the minds of many, the clashes of these two mm -hmm. uh, came out most noticeably in, in the performance of Jesse Owens. And, mm -hmm. and so there are endless amounts of stories about the four gold medal um, winner, um, the greeting or not greeting, the shaking of hands, not shaking of hands, the upset postures and, and the kind of facial expressions. But from Hitler's perspective, he must have almost assumed that naturally the German competitors would be victorious. And, mm -hmm. you know, that was obviously not always the case. I mm -hmm. mean, um, most notably not the case when they faced Jesse Owens. And so that, you know, in lots of ways became one of the bigger embarrassments. But there's also otherwise a lot of evidence that suggests that good many Germans were fascinated by Jesse Owens mm -hmm. and idolized, um, you know, his his kind of athletic abilities. And we also have to remember in attendance were not just Germans, but it was uh, the, well, the, Olympics the world. And the mm -hmm. world. And so there were in attendance all kinds of other people. And, and also, you know, what complicates this further, if, you know, we, we wanted to attend the next Olympics right now, we probably should, you know, just about think about getting some tickets. And so many of the people who had bought tickets had actually bought them years before. And, you know, at a time when maybe, you know, they hadn't quite thought about the Third Reich. And so there's a very mixed um, audience um, in, inside that in lots of ways has, you know, various, you know, complicated, you know, identifications, but they don't all line up with the racial politics of the Third Reich. Exactly. And I mean, point in case is the participation of Helen Mayer, who was allowed to be a member of the German Olympic team. And we also have another image here um, of the three women who won. Um, she won silver medal for fencing. And 
you know, there was actually kind of a controversy whether or not she should be allowed to be a member. But in 35, she had actually been in studying in California, of all places. She was in the United States when she received a formal invitation to return um, to Germany and, and to be a part of the team. And, you know, at the time, of course, it was argued that she had a very, quote unquote, Aryan look. She fit the description. She was already somewhat famous. And, and, and Hitler actually used this as a symbol of inclusiveness, because we have to think about the fact that, you know, prior to the Olympics itself, there had been a possibility of a boycott very quickly uh, failed. And so when 49 nations sent their teams to Germany, in many ways, they helped to legitimize um, Hitler's regime in the eyes of the world. And so I think that, you know, using her um, and allowing her to be a member of the German team also played on this card, right? Hitler was, of course, like Dr. Romer has already mentioned, there, there was so much about the image of what this meant, right? The propaganda of, of this itself. Now, something that I think is really telling, you know, if we're looking at this image and we put ourselves back in 1936, um, and we see Helen here on this image, on the far right um, side of this image, and she's doing the Hitler salute because she's the only German on the stage here. And we could talk a little bit about how at this point, um, you know, the, the Nuremberg laws of 35 would have already passed. But what becomes really interesting is this idea that the Hitler regime itself created these categories of how people should identify themselves, that they would not have identified themselves previously. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about what we see in this image, how we can interpret it, Dr. Romer. So this is a really interesting point that, you know, and we often just forget this very simple truth that up until 33, Jews in Germany, for all intents and purposes, were Germans. Exactly. They were neighbors and they were athletes. They, you know, were bakers. There were all kinds of things. But most importantly, they were Germans. Uh, they were representing different social classes, different levels of education. Um, there was not like a you know spatial segregation or any, and they were most importantly a very small minority. So part, and this is often you know really forgotten, part of the racism of of the Third Reich involved actually creating categories that didn't exist prior to it, all the way down to these artists of of you know, characterizations of half Jews and quarter Jews and whatever. But they had to create, first of all, a classification to then register individuals as Jews and not to make it any longer an, an issue of choice. So it was not down to you to decide whether you're this or that, but it was down to the state to decide. And this became very critical, as we know, because it classified you, it marked you, um, comes 38, um, you know, it would be indicated in public telephone books uh, whether you're Jewish or not. So it had real um, consequences even way before the actual persecution occurred. But most importantly, those are very artificial categories. And we still see Nazi Germany in, in this kind of lead up of the 30s struggling with these kind of categories and not quite insisting always on all of them evenly. And in particular, with her here wearing the kind of same uniform, raising her right arm, she fits in. She doesn't stand out. And so I think that's the other kind of uh, very powerful part of that image. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, you already mentioned um, Jesse Owens previously, and that is another one of these images that we have of him on on this podium, you know, at the at the at the center of, of the world stage. But then again, let's put ourselves back in 1936 upon his return to the United States. Right. He returns to a segregated America. He doesn't receive an invitation to the White House. Um, Franklin Roosevelt doesn't congratulate him as he would have the white athletes. So we also have to think about it in these terms of what is happening in this moment so that oftentimes when we 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 think about it in hindsight, it's very easy, right? To to look at the Nazis and, and to make the the these um rightfully so to make these judgments. But if we actually think about what is happening in America when Jesse Owens returns, um you know, it's not that different, we could say, from these kind of racial categories that were being created by the Nazis itself, right? So you know, in other ways, it's just, you know, not to, to create any false, you know, right. you know, similarities here, but, you know, it's in the eyes of many people in the 1930s, race actually meant something that, that existed in society. When people talked about race, they, they thought actually this existed. They didn't think that this was a made-up category that falsely you know lumped together lots of people that otherwise had lots of differences into one category they, they wholeheartedly thought that no race describes something just as much as height or weight or, or whatever is that it's very objective uh, we know that that's obviously not the case but within the world of the 1930s the the simple use of racial categories would not have been something that other European neighbors, would have found in it of itself exactly um, repulsive. Nor would have the United States necessarily found that in it of itself repulsive. I mean, to be sure, the Nazis would end up doing something radically different with it. But the simple existence of these categories mm -hmm. um, themselves and, and the acceptance of them would have been very, very widely spread. And therefore, Jesse Owens actually, you know, kind of has a part in. in He wants to tell that story, and he emphasizes that Hitler did not purposely, you know, not shake his hand, but he emphasizes, like you said, that uh, he, he had a slightly odd welcome because he could not even be brought in through the front door of the Waldorf Astoria, but had to take the, the back side of, of, of the hotel. Um, and therefore, within that world, unfortunately, we see race as being an acceptable category not just in Germany, but across the world, and in this case, across the Atlantic. Exactly. And so, for example, if we wonder, you know, what was the immediate reaction of the world to the 1936 Olympics? And we think about the ways in which uh, reporters were writing about this in the New York Times, for example. Uh, what we see basically being echoed throughout these reports is that the Olympics had actually put Germany back into the folds of the nations, right? That it had made how more human again because again we have to think about in the 1931 olympic commission when they decided to host this in berlin it was in a way you know after the first world war as a way of reintroducing germany to the world stage right as a way of welcoming this was kind of the the idea in 1931 of course by 1936 it's a very different world but nonetheless You know, at the end of the Olympics, um, there's really only one American foreign correspondent, uh, William Schreier, who really understood that the Berlin 
um, you know, Olympic, that facade was actually hiding this very racist, oppressive, violent regime that, you know, he even writes this um, on his diary on August 16th of 1936. And I will just read a very brief quote here. He says, I'm afraid the Nazis have succeeded with their propaganda. First, the Nazis have run the games on a lavish scale, and this has appealed to the athletes. Second, the Nazis have put up a very good front for the general visitors, especially the big businessmen. And so he's, you know, he's one of the few voices that actually goes this route and tries to, to, to bring up a little bit of the attention to what is actually happening. Just to illustrate again how, though, in this world there were numerous confusions that, or yes. uncertainties that still existed, let's remind ourselves that the maker of the triumph of the will, Leni Riefenstahl, had been commissioned by the Olympic Committee to make the movie, not by Hitler. And mm -hmm. that in the way she goes about that movie, she also displays, as people have argued, two separate agendas. On the one side, it idolizes Hitler with these constant cutbacks and the saluting and all that. But she does, you know, spend an awful attention on American um, athletes. And one of the reasons why presumably she had, she did this was that she also wanted to appease and appeal to American audiences because she also understood the movie making industry and thought of America as a potential, you know, another career path for her. So Absolutely. not every, obviously she, she has a few things wrong there at that time. But the very fact that these dreams could still be entertained tells us something about that in 36, rightly or wrongly, a lot, in many eyes, or the world had not quite yet aligned in the way in which we think it might have already in 36. Exactly. That, that is really important. And I think it's very few, there are very few um, people who were keenly aware of what was happening. So, you know, just like the foreign correspondent, if we think about someone like Victor Klemperer, who was, you know, keenly aware of the changes that were rapidly happening. Um, of course, uh, we know that he was a veteran of the First World War. He was a, a distinguished professor by this point. Um, and he was, you know, stripped from his academic post in 1935. And so he was quite personally feeling all of the changes happening. And so he writes in his diary about the Olympics. Uh, and he talks about, you know, all of these things that are already mentioned in the in the New York um, Times article. He talks about how, you know, he writes on April 13th that the Olympics, which are now ending, are doubly repugnant to me. First, as an absurd overestimation of the sport, the honor of a nation depends on whether a fellow citizen can jump four inches higher than all the rest. In any case, a Negro from the United States jumped the highest of all in the Jewish Helena Meyer, who we talked about earlier, won the fencing silver medal for Germany. And then he says, I don't know which is more shame shameless, her participating as a German of the Third Reich or the fact that her achievement is claimed for the Third Reich. And then he goes on, he says, and secondly, I find the Olympics so odious because they're not about sports in this country, I mean, but are an entirely political enterprise. Um, German Renaissance through Hitler, I read recently, it's constantly being drummed into the country, into the foreigners that here uh, is witnessing the revival, the flowering, the new spirit, this idea of the new the new Germany. Um, and then I will just end here. So basically, you know, he's talking about all of these things that are happening. It's, it's really not going under the radar for him. He's really keenly aware of what is actually happening. And he, you know, is trying to bring attention to the fact that, you know, all of the offensive 
slogans and papers had disappeared, but only until August 16th. You know, he, he's keenly aware after the 16th, it will all return to back to back to business, um, you know. But he is an immensely um, tentative observer. And, and so yes. one of the things that is so striking about him is, you know, he reads, he talks, but he also, it's, it's 36. He's Jewish. His wife is not. So that puts him like in a kind of in-between status. But he increasingly mm -hmm. is socially isolated. But the way he picks up on changes is he records the changes in the German language. And so mm -hmm. part of his endeavor from here on forward is that he records the shifting culture, so to speak, in the ways it it reflects in the changing language. And one of the other things that the Nazis really successfully did is they introduced new words that structured mm -hmm. how people talked and thought and, and made sense of what surrounded them. And Klemperer records this, uh, records the building blocks to this new Nazi vocabulary and um, which creates a new world and a new way by which the world is perceived and seen. And I think that's in lots of ways the, for me, really the other, like I said earlier, the outcome out of this Olympics, that it kind of creates this, you know, powerful way to focus the world's attention on one particular aspect of Nazi Germany, while at the same time it takes away the attention from virtually all other aspects of it. And so for us, I think in our exercise, one event per year, we debated which one should we take for 1936. And we, in the, in the end, accepted, I think, the one that everyone else identifies with 36, meaning the Olympics. But to be <laughs> sure, it's only one of the many contenders. Not too far, we have the Spanish Civil War. We, there could have been many other kind of things that we could have singled out, but you know, for good reasons, I think 36 is is in many ways a, a really important one. And the most, you know, again, Klemper is, is great, but he's almost sometimes, you know, so amazingly perceptive that that he thereby becomes not very representative. <laughs> and so in many ways, after that height of the new legislation introduced in 35, the kind of slowing down lulled also German Jews into thinking the worst may have happened. And we can see this, you know, insofar as in this period, there's not a huge increase in, in immigration. If anything, um, after 33, when it all jumped up, it kind of had subsided and would only really accelerate again in 38. So in lots of ways, the, the trick, so to speak, that a huge spectacle does Mm -hmm. um, kind of worked virtually on everyone. Um, the Germans were convinced that they were mighty and invincible. Mm -hmm. uh, many Jews thought that the worst had already had happened. And the world mm -hmm. thought that Germany, Nazi Germany, was almost a normal country again. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, the 1936 um, Olympics, we could say, was more than just a worldwide sporting event. It was also a display of Nazi propaganda, very successful propaganda, we might add. And it also helped to promote Germany as this racial state, as you're saying. And very importantly, 1936 was the first Olympic to have been televised. And so it, it, it really played an important role in the world's perception of the event by the mere fact that it was being live you know, on live TV. That is really interesting. So that in many ways, therefore, it is, you know, really also bringing the world much more closely together 
focused on this one event that is simultaneously followed either on these uh, public TVs that can be followed or indeed by the radio. Um, that's the, you know, the other way, ways by which you know, lots of people connected to this as it was um, unfolding. People intently in their homes, mm-hmm. um, com- you know, as radio does, communally with the family right. following um, how the races turn out. And then so that becomes a very, very pow- powerful image of the Olympics as well. Mm-hmm. But to this day, I think at least, you know, it's remnants, the Olympic Stadium uh, being one of them. And the stories about Jesse Owens. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of gold medals won, uh, gold medals lost, but also maybe the idea that one is capable of separating sports from politics, uh, because one had successfully done that in '36. While you know, like you rightly said, in lots of ways, the one was never far away from the other. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Romer. Thank you, Thank- Angie. Thank you, Dr. Valente. Thank you, Thank- Angie. Thank you. And I hope that our listeners will enjoy this episode and that they will the information we have about 1936 through these primary documents that we mentioned during this episode. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with those interested in learning about significant events that happened during the early years of Hitler's Third Reich. To keep in touch with us, please follow us on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast or on Twitter at Ackerman Podcast. Stay safe and take care. Until next time. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Valencia with the help of Angie Simmons and Niels Romer, edited and engineered by Sarah Valencia.